We're continuing our study uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's about 17 weeks. I think we're four or five weeks into it. And again, we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 26. Here's the name of the sermon title uh, this morning. Uh, Repairing our rusted and busted relationships. I think you can figure it out. Repairing our rusted and busted relationships has little to do with you and everything to do with the Lord and what he does in and through God's people. So with that in view, let me ask you a question. And just, just when you hear this and this is you, just jump up and say, this is me. Is there anybody here today that is angry? Yeah, nobody's going to ever admit that. It's not like I can give away anything for free. If it was an iPad, you guys would all be jumping up. No one's going to admit that, but I pray that through God's word today, as we go through it verse by verse, maybe a few of you might lean in and say, yeah, that's me. That's me. But we're going to find out. Here's something that I read. Christian counselors report that 50% of those who come in for counseling have problems dealing with their anger. I wonder if there's anybody here secretly that's dealing uh, with, with an anger uh, challenge. Uh, maybe it's uh, anger uh, towards a spouse. You know, maybe with your spouse you're not seeing any change. You've been praying for some time. Or maybe you've been hurt by something your spouse has done. Maybe it's anger towards uh, one of your kids. Maybe you're just finding they're just not listening anymore. They're always fighting. Maybe it's that. Maybe you're angry towards a friend or a person that you you love or you thought you loved or you don't know if you love them anymore, a co-worker. Uh, maybe it's something with that person. Maybe you feel betrayed or maybe this past year with the, the political season that we were in and this COVID and all the things that would go into that, we can just pile that all in uh, and dump it in one big pile. Uh, maybe you just found yourself angry towards somebody in that category. Maybe it's caused division or strife towards uh, one another. Well, allow me to set the scene uh, today, and I think it's going to really help you, by letting you in on something that's personal to me, and I think it's personal enough to me, I think it's going to actually help you. I know of a person, and it's not Jesus, okay, so I know of a person, it's not Jesus, who has had to work through the pain of being uh, betrayed. This person was misunderstood, This person was considered worthless by his own family. And if that wasn't enough pain for this person to bear, this same man would find himself later on in life falsely accused and then literally put into prison. And this situation, you could say, this person literally had their freedom taken away. He was robbed of his freedom. Brothers and sisters, there's certainly more uh, to that story, and and I'm going to share the details of that story at the conclusion of our time together, but first, what I'd like for you to do is to stand so that we can honor the written Word of God uh, together, and again, I'll be reading out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 21 through 26. Now, is Daryl and Brenda Lackey here today? Just put your hand up if you're here. There they are, Daryl and Brenda. Daryl and Brenda. Brenda, we're grateful that you're here. Daryl and Brenda represent the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, so they're here today, so we're grateful to have them here. And then John Busick's way in the back. You'll figure him out in a few minutes. He's one of our was one of our elders, but he moved to Montana, like much of you are thinking of. It's like every time I talk to somebody, it's like, I love Jesus, and I want to let you know I'm thinking about moving, you know, <laughs> Texas or whatever. So anyways, I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. All right, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 21 through 26. Hey, you have heard it said, 
You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Hey, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, listen to this, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, leave, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. And the Lord finishes up like this, 26. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So reads God's perfect and holy word this morning. You may be seated. So the Sermon on the Mount is considered the most popular sermon or the best sermon ever preached because it was preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, and that was Jesus Christ. This famous sermon starts in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 1, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 29. It totals about 111 verses, but the primary audience is the 12 disciples, and then, of course, there's the crowd. There's those leaning in and, and listening, and there's a whole heck of a lot of them as Jesus preaches alongside that mountainside, hence we call it the Sermon on the Mount. So that's his primary audience. Remember, too, that the disciples, we learn in chapter 4, verse 19, and verses 21, these disciples are kind of new at all of this. They were just called, and Jesus beckons them. He says, come and follow me, and they leave everything. And now they're sitting here listening to the Sermon on the Mount. So just remember, we're not dealing with experts here. The Pharisees certainly know a few things about the Torah, but the disciples do as well. But they're kind of getting used to the way Jesus does some things. And he's going to say some things that are going to just really put their hair back. And you're going to see that in just, in just a moment. So here's my outline for today, which I think will help you follow along. So it's six verses. So verses 21 and 22 we're going to see murder defined. Jesus is going to define what murder is, so murder defined. And then in verses 23 and 24, uh, we see re anger reconciled. And then 25 and 26, how we can recover from anger. But no one's here is angry, so I'm probably just preaching to myself this morning. You'll see, you'll see. All right, so the first thing we want to look at is murder defined, Okay. So Jesus says in verse 21, pretty easy to see here, you shall not murder. Obviously, this is an exact quote from the Old Testament, specifically Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It says it's, exact, it's exactly the same if you go over there. So he's repeating a verse that they'll be familiar with. He's repeating something that they would know, which would be the sixth commandment. It's familiar to all of them, because they know the Torah, and they under, not only do they understand this verse, they probably memorized it. So they know what he's talking about. Jesus knows his audience. But I also just want you to notice and pause, it's a little extra, the verse does not say, you shall not kill. And that's not what it says. It doesn't say, you shall not kill. 
because the Lord has actually allowed us to kill. Okay, you're like, what in the world type of church is this? Uh, for the following three reasons, self-defense, war, and capital punishment, right? So there's a difference, and that's very important. But it says, you shall not murder. And of course, this was accepted. They understood this, and they agreed with it. But let's look at the last part of verse 21. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. They agreed with that as well. You should not murder, and if you do, you're liable to judgment. Everybody's in agreement here. The sixth commandment has made, commandment has made it clear that anyone who is guilty of murder would be liable to civil court where judgment would, in fact, be rendered. Nothing shocking yet. So his audience has no issues up to this point. Zero with what's being said. But what's going to be said in verse 22 is going to place yet another 800-pound gorilla in the middle of the room. Another one. Jesus keeps stacking up these gorillas. He does so, or you're going to see, he does so by clearly defining the terms of murder. His terms. And this is once again going to up the ante and make observance of the Torah law impossible because you cannot, you cannot be holy and righteous what Jesus requires by doing things. So it's an impossibility, and he starts to explain that. So again, in verse 22, Jesus is going to set the record straight on the definition of murder. He's going to set the, rec the record straight on who is liable. He's going to set the record straight on what the punishment is going to be for those who are an offender on the terms that Jesus describes. So again, look what it says. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, verse 22, but I say to you, this is Jesus, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is making the point that murder, by his definition, by his definition, is not only the physical act of homicide, it's much deeper than that. And that's what he's trying to get across to them. Jesus provides three characteristics of murder in our text. It's easy to see. He says, whoever is angry. He says, whoever insults his brother. And whoever says, you fool. So think about what we've just got done reading. And allow me to explain it, even though you probably don't need me to. You probably already grasped it. Jesus is saying, whoever is angry is guilty of murder. Jesus also says, whoever insults his brother is guilty of murder. You know, this insult his brother, the original language, it defines this word as raka. This word means to insult someone by calling them certain names. I mean, I'm just going to give you some of the names that I saw in the commentaries that I looked at this week. 
you know, if you call your, your whoever insults his brother is guilty of murder. So if you call somebody a, a nitwit, a blockhead, a idiot, <laughs> if you're using any words that are meant, that are being used because of your utter disdain and contempt, Jesus is saying, you're guilty of murder. But then it says also, the third one, Jesus says, whoever says you fool is guilty of murder. Hey, words matter, don't they? They matter a whole lot to a holy and righteous God. But he says, whoever says you fool, this is where we get the Greek word moros, meaning moron. <laughs> so if you say to somebody, hey, look, you moron, the Lord is saying, yeah, you're a liar. I mean, no, you're not a liar, you're a murderer. So you see how Jesus is bringing this down very succinctly and really straight and getting their attention. So Jesus is emphatic about this. He's setting the record straight by saying, anyone who harbors rage, anyone in the audience that spews out spiteful words is guilty of murder, and Jesus leaves no wiggle room whatsoever in our text. There's no negotiation. It is what it is, right? It is what it is. Jesus says, if that is you, you are liable. Whoever is angry is liable to judgment. What are they liable to? Well, they're liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. I want to be careful here because Jesus is not placing these sins in order of their seriousness. It might seem that way, but that's not the main idea here. That's not what he's doing. He's simply letting you know, letting us know, letting his audience know uh, this is a serious thing to slander your brother or to be angry. He says th these are, this is serious. But what should get everyone's attention is that last one, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's using a metaphor to describe a place of eternal punishment. They know what he's talking about. Gehenna, right? That place just outside those gates, the place where trash was burned, the place where uh, child sacrifices took place and all sorts of incredibly heinous things. A place of torment, not a good place. So what is he saying as he used this metaphor to describe a place of eternal punishment? He's saying, listen, a fiery hell awaits every guilty lawbreaker and every sinner. That should really get everybody's attention, right? And it does. That's why they hated Jesus. He said these things that just rocked them. And he does it again. Remember, it's the 800-pound gorilla. So what Jesus is doing is he's setting the record straight. That the standard to which God uses, his standard is perfection, the standard that he uses is so high that not only he considers our actions, but he also considers every thought and every single Jesus is telling us and telling his audience, I am concerned 
with the motives of one's heart. Why is that? Why is that? Because our words, think, listen, our words are an indicator of what's going on inside of us. You see, what's inside of us is going to come out of us. It's an indicator about one's spiritual health. It's, an, it's, an, it's telling something. Words matter. And he's talking about their hearts. Not about the things we do. Not about keeping all these, doing all these things. He said, I want to know where your heart's at. Is it right? The words reveal our true spiritual condition and we can't get over on the Lord. And he says, I see all, I know all, and I'm going after your heart. Sometimes we use too many words. Sometimes we say the wrong things. And as we speak, we speak out of arrogance. Our words can devalue others. And even times when we use language such as he's speaking about here, as Jesus is telling us about here, whoever insults his brother says, you fool, that word raka, bonehead, idiot. He's saying, look, what you're doing is you're devaluing someone. And I value them. Uh, I heard a, a, a pastor friend of mine say uh, this. He said he was watching, I hope I can remember this, but he was watching a television show with his wife and his wife had to exit the room and go do something and she comes back and she says well what did I miss because you didn't miss hardly anything he says this 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 druggy loser druggy has gone off and he's he's doing this and bringing some people you know along with him he's just this guy's just it's horrible it's good for nothing or something like that and she says um there's nobody horrible. There's nobody that we should devalue in that way. Everyone is valuable. I think he used a word that, that he wasn't valuable, like a sluggard or something like that. I forgot what it was. But it was derogatory, but it was cleaned up, right? So I think I blew the point there, but I would like to circle back and just stay with me. When he, whatever language it was, I just forgot what the exact word was, but he said something that made it look like that person wasn't valuable, and his wife stepped in and just said, everyone's valuable, everyone matters to God, because the inner nature came through. The Holy Spirit came through this woman. And you know he could have said, and he did, I was just watching TV. It doesn't matter. But what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. So Jesus is saying to us, you are not innocent just because you have not shed blood. They thought they were innocent because they kept the law. Like many of you, you would say, hey, look, hey, look, I do, I don't do, a, there's a lot of things I don't do right, but I can tell you this, I've kept that sucker, number six, I haven't killed anyone. Well, Jesus is saying to us, you're not innocent just because there hasn't been any bloodshed. He says, you may think that you were removed from murder morally, but you are mistaken. Again, going back to what we're setting up in the text here. Kent Hughes provides some great insight here. He says these words, just keep the text in view here. Have you, held, have you ever held someone in contempt? Just, these are questions I'm asking you and asking myself. Has Charlie 
Has he ever held someone in contempt? What about you? Have you ever wished someone ill? Wished that somebody was dead? Listen up. If that's you, your heart knows murder. Deep. None of us in this room can escape the application that I just shared with you. According to the text, all of us are murderers. All of us are murderers. We have an entire room this morning full of murderers. And those that were there at the Sermon on the Mount, I'm saying the same thing. Like, I'm looking at murderers. Because we've all murdered others in our mind. Now, I just want to pause. There might be somebody going, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Because everyone does that. That's exactly the right. All, that's right. Everyone has sinned. All fall short of the glorious standard, which is perfection. So all are guilty before a holy and a righteous God. That's the point. No one can keep this law. We need Jesus. We need a new heart with new desires. We need the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within the believer that convicts us over our sins so that we will stop. There won't be a pattern of this type of behavior. Jesus looks at the heart, examines the heart, and those who hear this message understand that they've all come up short. All of them. Every person. Everyone comes up short to this glorious standard. What the Lord is doing is so gracious and kind and merciful, but it's hard to see that when you try to justify your actions. But what we need to understand is Jesus is wants us to be so driven by this, this confrontation that, that, that we're, we drive ourselves to Jesus and the reality that this scripture brings to us. We've been enlightened. And it's meant to drive us to himself. The, the, the fact is, the question is, have you come? Has God's word, has this verse, has any other verse shown you your sin in such a way that it's driven you to Christ? Have you come? What has driven you into the arms of Christ? Because according to the text, we're going to see it, murderers who repent and trust Christ are welcome to come to Him. Have you come to Christ? Because according to the Scripture, murderers are welcome. you imagine the Pharisees and the scribes hearing this? To them it was utter blasphemy. The one who speaks with such authority, saying such things, going against our tradition, 
Yeah, well, Jesus goes against a lot of traditions. We'll continue on that in a moment. But the second thing we see is reconciling anger. Reconcile anger. Now that Jesus exposed our hearts, and that's what he's done, he's exposed our hearts. My heart was exposed when I read this. He's now asking us, everybody in the room, all those that are listening, he's saying, listen, okay, that's the word of God, you're hearing it, it's splitting us open. He goes, now I want you to take inventory of all of your rusted and busted relationships, all of them. So if we can just pause for a moment, just think about those relationships in your life that are rusted or busted. Those that are in need of repair. Maybe some that you think it's impossible for it to be repaired. The Lord would have us consider that this morning. And as the Lord brings a relationship or two to your mind, we're now given instructions in the next two verses on how it is that we are to reconcile. And let's look at that in 23 and 24. Instructions from the Lord on how it is we can reconcile. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, yeah, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There's a sense of urgency here. He's saying reconciliation takes precedence over our gifts. Reconciliation takes precedence of giving, giving something at the altar, right? Reconciliation requires us to do something. It requires the believer to be a peacemaker. Reconciliation requires the H word, humility. Humility. Reconciliation requires obedience. To hear God's word is one thing. To respond to God's word is another. There are many who say that the Lord, that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, but how do we really know? It's not what they say. It's how they obey the Lord. They want to obey because of what he's done for them. So reconciliation requires obedience. So Jesus says, go to your brother and make peace and reconcile. I like what one commentator suggested concerning leaving the offering suggested about this, this commentator said, um, you know, considering as we concerning leaving the offering there and returning home to reconcile, he says Jesus was talking to Galatians, to the Galileans, Jesus was talking to the Galileans, the Galileans, and the offerings were to be in Jerusalem. One would then be compelled to return by foot some 80 miles back to Galilee to reconcile, then return to Jerusalem to give the offering. Not likely to happen, yet one more impossible requirement. Let me patch that up. Is it impossible because it's 80 miles by foot? Let's just say that it ain't easy, right? <laughs> that ain't easy. But perhaps more to the point, it's impossible 
it's impossible because the only way we are going to humble ourselves to others is if we first humble ourselves before the Lord. If we don't humble ourselves before the Lord, we're not going to be humbling ourselves in front of others. You see how this goes together. You're not going to be reconciling if Jesus Christ isn't the center of your affections. We must humble ourselves before the Lord so that we can humble ourselves before others. Prideful people will never reconcile biblically. It's just not fair. (laughs) It's just not right. But a healthy, vertical relationship will translate to your horizontal relationships. Let me say that again. If your relationship with Christ is right, you're going to see fruit in the other relationships in your life. It's part and parcel of those who've been saved and redeemed by Christ. Prideful people are notorious for making excuses, not peace. And by the way, that one kind of hurt me because I thought, man, I'm, I'm like that too. So don't leave me up here. Um, prideful people make excuses, not peace. Hey, anybody ever made excuses and not peace? Just, just put your hand up. Thank you for the seven of you. 12 of you, 13. It's like Catholic Mass. I've got to get you guys to confess. But yet different. Kevin DeYoung, and I paraphrase some of his thoughts on the subject, said that someone who's unrepentant, they would never say, I have murdered them in my heart. Remember the first question I asked you? Rather, the excuse is in the form of a polite, euphemism that's how we usually respond i lost my temper i'm not angry i just lost my temper i mean come on everybody loses their temper right you lost it where did you put it or i'm just blowing off steam come on blowing off some steam just venting a little bit It's just natural to do such things. I'm only human. Really what one is saying is anger is just, you know, blowing off steam. You know, it's just a natural outlet. It's just what we do. Who does? Well, that's the question. How about this one? Well, they just kind of push my buttons they hit the anger button and when you hit the anger button it doesn't count because they hit the anger button yeah i know sam and sally you know the way they are they just hit my buttons they like to push so i'm not really angry it's just that's what they do and that's excusable that's the respectable sin and God's not going to count it against me, wrong, wrong. Translation, anger is forced upon me by others. It's not my anger. 
you see, this type of anger, it was forced upon me by others. They're the ones that are doing it to me. You see, this person will never reconcile because they believe that anger is something done to them, not something that they've done to others. Look at what they're doing to me. They're making me angry. They've pushed my buttons. And the Lord is saying, yeah, yeah, wrong. Yeah, like wrong on all fronts. A right relationship with God is often revealed in our relationships with others. Period. And how we speak to others, how we behave around others, will tell us how we're doing. Even for those that are in Christ. You see, when I get really irritated and mooded, moody, mooded, moody, it's an indication of what's going on in my heart. And the same would be true for you. The third thing I want to cover, and finally, and final point, would be recovering from anger. Can we recover from such anger? 23 and 24 speak to our reconciliation of our offended brother. These last verses, 25 and 26, address how we can recover from such anger. Let's read 25 and 26. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Pretty straightforward. Jesus again saying, make peace with your accuser. Inasmuch as it depends upon you, go make peace. He's saying, go quickly, make it, uh, be urgent about it. Go before there's a court hearing. Go quickly before you stand in front of the judge. Do it now, right now, before the dispute that you're dealing with gets worse. How many people know that things can get worse in a relationship that's busted? So he's saying, handle your business. Before we have a busted relationship, it usually was a rusted relationship. In other words, don't neglect your relationships and don't neglect the wise counsel of the Lord which is in front of you this morning. So he's saying, make this a priority. Make reconciliation a priority. Get to the recovery cycle of all things. Drop everything and make it right is the message. So let's talk about application quickly. Handling anger, I think we'd all agree, is an important life skill. This is deeper than that. This is a gospel issue, but I think this will help us get to the gospel. Handling anger is an important life skill, but most just justify their anger. So here's a question. How do we overcome anger? What are some biblical ways, yet practical ways? Well, let me give you a few. Number one, return good for evil. Return good from evil. We see that in Romans 12.1. Number two, pray. We can change our feelings towards another person 
by, cho by, choose, by changing how we choose to act towards that person. We need the Lord to help us. Lord, would you help me? I have a situation here. He will help you. So return good for evil. We pray. We trust God. We trust God in all things, including that he can take care of any wrongs or any injustices. Romans 12, 19 tells us that. And it also reminds us, don't play God. Sometimes we try to play God. And he says, don't play God, trust God. Number four, see God in the trials. We see that explained for us in detail again, James 1, 2 through 4. We see it in Genesis 50, 20. God is faithful to redeem circumstances. He will use the challenges, the fiery trials to train us and to mature us in our faith. So see God in the trial. Number five, confession. We have to admit our prideful anger. Proverbs 28, 13 reminds us that whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces sin, it is they who find mercy. So don't cover up. If you cover up, God's going to uncover. But you uncover, Christ will cover. So the five applications would be confess sin, see God in the trial, trust God, don't play God, pray, return good from evil. But I want to lead you back to what I said earlier in my teaching when I first started, because I told you about a person that had to work through uh, a lot of pain, the pain of being betrayed. This was a man, as I shared with you, who was misunderstood, it was a man who was considered to be worthless by his own family. A man who was falsely accused, which led, him being put, which led to him being put into prison. And I am speaking of Joseph. Joseph. You know the guy back in Genesis? And his story reminds us about the heart, the true heart of the gospel. The Bible tells us, as Joseph, now in a place of authority, now out of prison, now a man that could inflict any harm on anyone that he wants, can make someone suffer the full wrath, Joseph responds to his brothers in what I would say a very unique way. His brothers are fearful. They're fully expecting that Joseph is going to throw the hammer at him. At him. He's going to throw the book at him because of their evil actions. So they're fearful. But Joseph responds this way, and I quote Genesis 50, 19 through 20. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. He's talking to his brothers. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? I thought he had authority to punish him. He does. Read it again. But Joseph replied to his brothers, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, 
But God intended, intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Wow. That is gospel speak. Joseph understood it was God who will punish. Joseph understood that it's God who will judge. God will bring about the judgment. That's what God does. That's not what he does. God does what God does, and Joseph does what Joseph does. Same for us. Joseph understood that what was, what was intended to harm him was actually used for good. We see the other side of the nickel. It's the culmination of redemption history. God becomes a man. He comes to this earth. And he puts himself under the judgment and the place of sinful man. Jesus allows sinful man to judge him. Yet he has full authority. Jesus allows himself to be placed into the hands of these evil men, these men who would ultimately betray him and murder him. Yet what man intended for evil, God has used for our good because Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus saves. He saves us and we repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus. Amen? Unresolved anger, unresolved anger interferes with our worship of an almighty God. It interferes. It holds us back. So how can a man like Joseph go through everything that he went through and not be bitter, not be angry, not be bitter of the heart, anger in the, angry in the heart. How does this happen? Simply put, his heart was changed by God. He loves God, and because he loves God, he obeys God. That's what people do. When they love God, they obey God. Amen? Let me pray with you. Father God, we thank you for this word. And Lord, I found it challenging. I found it hard in some places. I, I trust that my brothers and sisters felt likewise. Lord, thank you for the reminder of what we are and who you are, which your word says that those who repent of their sins and place their faith in you, you will... You'll redeem us. That you don't see us as a sinful man or woman anymore. You see us as perfect, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done. So we thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel. May we all see that we have sinned and fallen short. Is there anybody, Lord, if there's anybody here today, Lord, who does not know you or might think that they're going to be getting to heaven because they are a good person, would you, Lord, reveal through the power of your Holy Spirit that they are not good, that they too can be counted amongst the rest of us as murderers because God looks at the heart. So, Lord, use this word, use this teaching for your glory, we pray.